FMH podcast listeners. This is Sarah Burlingame, FMH blogger and friend of the podcast, asking for your support. We know Lindsay has done our community a profound service, bringing the voices of women in polygamy, intersectional feminism, and of course, the best and most hilarious commentary on schlocky, low-brow Mormon culture on the Bloggernacle. Please show your support by clicking on the donation link, or better yet, subscribe as a monthly member. If we believe that the work that women do to lift all of our voices is valuable, we need to support that work financially. If knowing that you had an FMH podcast waiting for you was the only thing that got you through the last Thanksgiving dinner without going full on Sonia Johnson, please give and give generously. Welcome back to another episode of the Feminist Mormon Housewives podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay, bringing you another episode in the Year of Polygamy series where we try to understand the practice of Mormon plural marriage. And I'm happy to be bringing back on a guest that you've all loved. Joe Geisner, can you say hello? Hi, Lindsay. Hi, everyone. Now, you'll remember Joe was on some of the earlier episodes where we talked about the Utah War and some of the violence that happened during the Mormon Reformation. And since we're almost done with the fundamentalist period and we're getting back into the modern church, I am taking this time to jump back in history a little bit to some of the stories that still need to be told that are really fascinating that we didn't have time or we couldn't schedule. And this is one of those stories. Joe and I have been talking about this for months and months and months. We finally have found time to record this. And this is a story that I think you're all going to love. It's, it's, it's actually my favorite, one of my favorite stories of Mormon history. And that's saying a lot. Uh, we're going to be talking about the murder of Parley P. Pratt. I'm going to let Joe take us in and give us an overview and tell us about Parley and set this up for us. And actually, can we, if it's all right with you, we'll probably discuss quite a bit of his plural marriages uh, and get into that, get into the lives of his wives. Is that all right? Absolutely. That's that's why it's on this podcast, because his murder, which a lot of people don't know about, is actually very much tied to polygamy. It is. <laughs> it really is. Parley Pratt is one of Mormonism's most important people, and yet many people don't really know a lot about him. Now, that has changed over the last 15 years, 20 years. But growing, I remember growing up in the church, and I had really no idea who Parley Pratt was. I remember seeing his name in some hymn books, or the, the hymn book, and some of the names, or his name would be on some of the hymns, along like with W.W. Phelps. And so I knew he was somebody in the past, somebody important, but it probably wasn't until I was in my late teens, maybe even ready to go on a mission before I started finding out about him. And, and then, as I told you before, I started collecting Mormon books on my mission. And Pratt stands out when it comes to the Mormon book world. His books are some of the most sought after. And Pratt was an, uh, an author of both theology and history. 
some of the works he did that people might be familiar with is A Voice of Warning, which was done in 1837. The Voice of Warning, as Peter Crawley says, is the most important of all non-canonical Mormon books. So it's, it's really only second to the Book of Mormon in its influence, particularly on the early Mormon period. But, but even up to today, much of our theology that we have today can be directly tied into a voice of warning. His other monumental work, and one that many people know, is called A Key to Science of Theology. And that was finished and then published just before his death. So it, it's, it's really his latest work. He also wrote the first piece of fiction in Mormonism. It's called A Dialogue Between Joseph Smith and the Devil. And then another one that's a dream. It's called Angel of the Prairie. As I said, he'd written, he's written hymns. Uh, he was a poet. He was a publisher. He was a newspaper man. He actually started up multiple newspapers in England, in New York, and in San Francisco. He was an adventurer. He did the first exploring south of Great Salt Lake and made those maps. He was a loner also, and, and he sought uh, solitude. I wouldn't say like Thoreau, but he built a cabin out in the western frontier, which at the time was Ohio. Uh, he became involved with Sidney Rigdon, and he he was what's called a religious primitivist, and that's a person. And it, Sidney Rigdon was was uh, the leader of that movement among the Campbellites. The Campbellites sought that, and they're one of the early religious movements in the United States. But the primi primitivist sought to build a church based on the New Testament's teachings. So you you would have a lay clergy, you would meet in people's homes. Priesthood was very different than uh, the way the, even the Methodist and, and those people were doing it. So as a matter of fact, a great book, one that I would highly recommend for people, is called Quest for Refuge by Marvin Hill. Marvin Hill was a BYU professor, and he deals with that early movement and how the Mormon church sought the, the, those early people within Mormonism were primitivist and sought to be like the, the original church of the New Testament. Fascinating. I didn't know that angle. Yeah, he's a, he's a fascinating person. And like I say, one in the Mormon book world, he's, uh, he's probably the most famous of all. When you can, when you can get a hold of something that he's written and was published during his life, that's a big deal. You know, people, as a matter of fact, my, one of the most choice books I have is the last edition a voice of warning before he was murdered. I think it's like 1851 or 1852 edition. So. Oh, cool. Um, yeah. And that's a text yeah. that I actually have read quite a bit from. So that means a lot to me that you have that. That's really neat. That's great. That's great. Well, let's uh, step right into his life as a married man. Pratt married his first wife, who her name was Thankful Holly. He married her in 1829, 
and she actually died March 1837 in Kirtland. She died shortly after. I don't know if it was within hours or 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 just one day, but it was it was either with the same day or the next day. She passed away after giving birth to their son, Parley Pratt Jr. The reason that that is such a big deal is because Heber uh, C. Kimball had gone to their house and had prophesied that she would have, that if Parley would go on his mission to Canada, that she would uh, have health, which didn't obviously occur, and that she would have a child which she did have as uh, she got pregnant and, and obviously had uh, the son, and he was called Parley Pratt Jr., and really uh, carried on his father's work on many levels and is actually a fascinating person in and of itself. Well, after Parley had become a primitivist and, and had joined up with uh, Sidney Rigdon, he was uh, asked to spread the gospel. This was in August 1830, so just a little bit after the church's organization in April 1830 of the Mormon, of the Mormon church happening in Manchester, New York. And so Pratt sells all of his, his stuff, his business, his log cabin that he builds. He, after he does all that, he and Thankful are left with uh, $10. And he actually still has financial obligations that he didn't take care of and was later. And that, I think, occurred while he went on his, once he had converted to Mormonism and then went on his mission to the Lamanites in Missouri. And I'm right now I want to give sort of an overview because it's going to get complicated with all these wives and children and everything. But, but I, I did an, I did a review for, uh, John Whitmer Historical Journal for the Givens and Grow book, Parley Pratt. And in my research, I discovered that, that Pratt was married to 12 different women. Uh, 10 of those marriages were polygamous marriages. So obviously thankful Holly was not a polygamist. And then his second wife, Marianne Frost was not a polygamist, but the others after that were. He fathered 30 children. 23 of those lived to adulthood. Again, Heber C. Kimball prophesied that Pratt would have a posterity would be as numerous as the stars of heaven. So from those 23 children, Pratt then had 266 grandchildren with an estimated 30 to 50,000 descendants today. And this I is important, right? This this comes up a few times, not just in Pratt, but Pratt is a good example of this, where these sort of prophecies about having, you know, seeds being numbered throughout heaven is not only sort of scripturally based, it sort of becomes this rhetoric that backs up polygamy, that, listen, here's why polygamy is so great, this prophecy was made, and now look at it. That's correct. And, you know, we've talked about, you and I have actually talked about this before, that, that it wasn't the women who had the children that were more, matter of fact, in a monogamous marriage, a woman usually had more children, but it was the men who had the more, you know, the children. And they were the ones who really, if you want to look at it from a theological standpoint, they were the ones who had their kingdoms grow. It wasn't the women. So. Yeah, um, fantastic. It, yeah. In comparison, you know, I, and so what I wanted to do was I, when I was doing this review, I wanted to compare 
one of Pratt's contemporaries. So I contacted the Joseph and Emma Smith Family Association, and I asked them how many living descendants they have. Now, I recognize that Joseph and Emma lost a lot of their children. They, they, and, and that actually seems to be a common occurrence through their children's children and on through that the, they did lose quite a few. I believe Joseph Smith III actually did. He lost a few of his children in early death. So, but, but just a comparison out of, okay, we got, we got Pratt with 30 to 50,000 descendants. Joseph, Joseph and Emma have 1,100 living descendants today. Even if you compare that with Pratt's 10 wives, I think it was 10 wives who had children who lived to adulthood, you know, there's just, I mean, it's just mind-boggling to think how, how many descendants Pratt has today. I just mentioned Marianne Frost. Marianne Frost was married in New York, I believe, or Maine, before Pratt taught her about the church on one of his missions. So when she came to Kirtland, thankful Holly had passed away on Mar- in March of uh, 1837 in Kirtland, and Pratt saw Marianne Frost and asked her to marry him, and they then were married two months later, May 14th, 1837, by Frederick G. Williams in Kirtland. There's uh, Parley Pratt's son, Parley Pratt Jr., went off to live with a family named Allen in Kirtland. So Marianne Frost had a child from her previous marriage that, that the, so the three of them lived together. Shortly after the marriage, the Pratts moved to far west Missouri as most of the Mormons left Kirtland and went to, um, to, to far west. And at the Battle of Crooked River, Parley murdered a, uh, at least one Missourian and, and there's some, it's pretty gruesome. They, they were using sickles and, and, and things. So it was not a, uh, it was a very bloody battle is, I guess, the best way of putting it. And so Pratt was arrested for the murder of this other person. That, that occurred in October. And so he was put in prison and then he asked Marianne Frost, his wife, to come live with him in jail, in, in the Richmond jail. She was living in a, a cabin that was almost a lean-to uh, that, that was leaking, and it was pretty bad. So she moved in in December 1838, and she stayed with him in the Richmond jail until March of 1839. And that time, after that time, Pratt was then moved to the Columbia jail and he escaped and then went to Nauvoo. In the fall of 39, Pratt left for his, another one of his missions. This one, he went to the Eastern United States first and then on to England. And he took Marianne Frost with him and left her there so she could stay in, uh, with her family in Maine. Now Pratt's on his mission until, so he, he goes like I say, in the fall of 39, he leaves Nauvoo and he doesn't return until the spring of 1843. So he's gone four years from Nauvoo. All kinds of things are happening in Nauvoo. John Bennett 
and and Joseph Smith are doing their things with uh, polygamy. And so a lot of that stuff is all happening. Orson Pratt comes back from one of his missions in the spring of 1841. And so Brigham Young, in July of 1842... Actually, I'm sorry, I think Orson Pratt comes back in the spring of 1842. Orson finds out from John Bennett's publication about Joseph Smith propositioning Sarah Pratt for polygamy while while Orson Pratt was on his mission in England in, in 41. And so the first time there's any inkling for Parley Pratt about polygamy is a letter from Brigham Young to Parley Pratt on July 17, 1842. And Brigham Young writes to Parley Pratt and says, Brother Orson Pratt is in trouble in consequence of his wife. His feelings are so wrought up that he does not know whether his wife is wrong or whether Joseph's testimony or others are wrong and do lie and he deceived for 12 years or not. He is all but crazy about matters. You may ask what the matter is concerning Sister Pratt. It is enough. And John C. Pinnock, John C. Bennett could tell all about it if he himself and he enough of that. We will not let Brother Orson go away from us. He is a good man to have a woman destroy him. Now, this is important for me because this is something that I think really drives me crazy when I hear this story talked about by some people that want to sort of defend this or use this to show that Sarah Pratt is not a reliable witness. They're just, I mean, the modern term that we would use is called slut shaming, right? There's a lot of victim blaming here. There's a lot of deferring to the woman. It's just, it's very, very troubling to me, the narrative, how this is twisted. Yeah, yes. And and it just continues to get worse, actually, as, as we go continue on in this history, because the evidence is so strong, in my opinion, anyway, that Joseph Smith and John C. Bennett and many of the other, Brigham Young, uh, Heber C. Kimball, were propositioning these women. And then if they said something wrong, yeah, yeah, let's... Let's destroy their, the women's reputation. And again, we need to recognize this is a man's society. So men have the power to do this to women. They have the power to destroy a woman's reputation. What's interesting about this letter, because there's been lots of controversy about the Orson Pratt attempted suicide. And again, remember, we're talking, okay, this letter that goes to uh, Parley Pratt from Brigham Young's July 17th, 1842. Three days before that letter is sent, like I said, Bennett publishes the account of Sarah Pratt being propositioned by Joseph Smith. That same day that that happens, Orson Pratt attempts suicide. And, and listen how closely Brigham Young's letter Sounds like Orson Pratt's suicide note here. And I think this is the first time Orson Pratt's suicide note has ever been read in anything like this because very few people even know about this letter. I am a ruined roan. My future prospects are blasted. The testimony upon both sides seems to be equal. 
the one in direct contradiction to the other. How to decide, I know not. Neither does it matter, for let it be either way. My temporal happiness is gone in this world. If the testimony of my wife and others are true, then I have been deceived for twelve years past. My hopes are blasted and gone. As it were in a moment, my long toils and labors have been in vain. If, on the other hand, the other testimonies are true, then my family are ruined forever. Where then is my hope in this world? It is gone, gone, not to be recovered. O God, why is it thus for me? My sorrows are greater than I can bear. Where I am henceforth, it matters not. And then the the story goes that Pratt went out to the uh, Mississippi River to commit suicide, and he was stopped. But the the letter, they found it on the street, and that's why Brigham Young's letter reflects the wording so closely to, to Orson Pratt's suicide. So this is the first time that Parley Pratt would have even heard anything about polygamy or about Sarah Pratt or about his brother. Now, I just want to juxtapose this with Orson later on, right? He becomes, I mean, this is not the end of a story here. Of course, it's terrible how it happens, but I think it's actually instructive for me to understand his fanaticism later on, you know, when he is becoming this this proponent of polygamy, this missionary for polygamy. I think that this is an important story to keep in the back of your head and how some things like this can really radicalize people and make them more extreme in something that has harmed them. The irony is that Orson was the one who Brigham Young assigned to make polygamy public. The seer, the, he wrote the, the conference. Seer. 1852, he goes with his uh, public campaign. He's, I call him the church's real first PR, PR man. Yeah, yeah. There's a great article, in, and I'm sure it's on the internet. And, it, you know, I'll look for the link after. But if not, I'll send you, and then we can put it up for people. It's called A Bone in the Throat by David Whitaker. And he describes um, the whole history of how Pratt, uh, Orson Pratt, how Orson Pratt was was the one who gave that and and the the stuff the events that happened before and then after and what's even more interesting is the argument that Orson Pratt uses in that talk can be directly tied to the writings of Parley Pratt and his defense for polygamy because Parley Pratt in spring of 1843 he and, and Marianne Frost return from England and land in the Nauvoo a ramp there and, uh, or wharf. And he's meted directly by Joseph Smith. And the first thing Joseph Smith wants to tell him or teach him is about polygamy. So Parley Pratt finds a great deal of enthusiasm <laughs> when, when this teaching is given to him. And less than a month or so later, he finds Elizabeth Brotherton. To marry him. Now, the Brothertons are going to become really important later on. But Elizabeth, in, in, in our discussion that, that continues. But Elizabeth Brotherton is a convert from England that Parley Pratt and Brigham Young 
are very close to while they're in England, and they go visit them frequently at their home. Now, the, the, the Brothertons, Thomas Brotherton and Sarah Brotherton, have, I believe, three or four daughters. So they become really important in the whole polygamy story, the early polygamy story. Parley Pratt marries Elizabeth, Elizabeth Brotherton in June of, June 23rd, 1843. But because Hiram Smith does this without Joseph Smith's consent, and there's belief that, that Joseph Smith wanted Parley Pratt to marry Marianne Frost's younger sister, Olivia. And so he tells his brother, Hiram Smith, along with the Pratt's, that the, the, and Elizabeth Brotherton, that the marriage is invalid. So after a month of wrangling, Joseph Smith allows Hiram Smith to marry Marianne Frost and Elizabeth Brotherton in another priesthood marriage on July 24th, 1843. Marianne Frost never really reconciles polygamy. There's a great letter from Valate Kimball to her husband, Heber C. Kimball, three days after, or six, I'm sorry, six days after the first marriage on June 26, 1843. And I'm going to read that because it's important to understand what's going on. I have had a visit from Brother Parley P. Pratt and his wife, Marianne. They are truly converted to plural marriage. Now, plural marriage has been added in by Mike because she just says that they've been truly converted. It appears that Joseph has taught him some principles and told him his privilege and even appointed one, in other words, Elizabeth Brotherton, for him. I dare not tell you, but that's probably wrong, because she probably is thinking of Olivia Frost. I dare not tell you what it is, as you would be astonished, and I guess some tried. She has been to me for counsel. I told her I did not wish to advise on some such matters. Sister Pratt has been raging against these things. She told me herself that the devil had been in her until within a few days past. She said the Lord has shown her it was all right. She wants Parley to go ahead, says she will do all in her power to help him. They are so inargued, I fear, that they will run too fast. They asked me many questions on principle. I told them I did not know much, and I would rather they would go to those who had authority to teach. Parley said he and I were interrupted before he got to instruct. He wanted and says he did not know when he would have an opportunity. He seemed willing to wait. I told him these were sacred things and he better not make a move until he got more instruction. Now, I believe, as I read that letter, and I've read it quite a few times, that Valette sort of shows her hand that she's not overly enthusiastic because people have tried to portray her as somebody who was willing to go be married to Joseph Smith and somebody who was, you know, supportive of Heber C. Kimball very complicit, to, very much encouraging of this. Right, right. But I think she shows her hand here that she's not overly enthusiastic about this and is, is made a bit sympathetic to Marianne Frost and, and her dilemma of having to, to deal with a new, a new wife. It's interesting because in a, a, a 
month after the second sealing or second marriage, William Clayton writes in his diary, he then he becomes involved in this whole thing about marriage. And Pratt, Parley Pratt is obviously looking for more more wives. And he's now even convinced Marianne Frost to help him look for more wives. This is after he's already married Elizabeth Brotherton. And William Clayton writes these entries. The first one's August 20th of 1843. He says, I went to see Sister Booth and had some conversation about Sister Aspen at Sister Booth's request. I have evidence that Sister Aspen is true to me and desires to revive her. I also had talk with Sister Aspen, who is in trouble. Parley Pratt has, through his wife, made proposals to her, but she is dissatisfied. Sister Pratt is obstinate. When Parley Pratt went away, Sister Pratt cautioned Sister Aspen against me and said the Twelve would have more glory than me. I tried to comfort her and told her what privilege was. Terry till 8.30 p.m. Next entry is October 19, 1844. Mary Aspen is ready to unite me, or to, yeah, to unite to me as her savior. PM, I went to Mary Aspen's. She has made up her mind to go with me. And that was the last entry there was October 21st, 1844. So clearly, Marianne Frost was, was conflicted. You know, she, she allowed Parley Pratt to marry Elizabeth Brotherton. Uh, but there's, you know, as she told Vallette that even a few days after that first marriage, she had the devil in her and, you know, and, and then, and then allowed it. And then she's actually then trying to convince this Mary Aspen to marry Parley Pratt a month later after the, the sealing with Elizabeth Brotherton. So, so there's, there's some really difficult things going on uh, between them. We're going to sort of jump ahead because Parley doesn't really deal with any other marriages for himself until after the murder of Joseph and Hiram Smith. And it, by this point, Marianne Frost has had enough. She no longer is willing to live with Parley Pratt. And so Davis, and you know, he's been gone on a mission. He comes back after the murders of the Smith brothers. And, and from that point on, they, they really never are with one another. Something happens that in, I believe it's September of 1844, while Pratt is on his mission to New York, he marries a, a woman named Mary Wood in September 9th, 1844. He marries Hannette Snively on November 22nd, 1844. And he marries uh, Belinda Marden on November 20th. Now, of this would be uh, Susanna Snively's sister, right? That married Brigham Right, Young. that is correct. And, and there's, you know, entries about from, from Hannah Snively about her going to the Pratt home and caring because Marianne, is, as we know, a lot of people were sick and other because of the, the malaria and things. And so, or the argue, um, and, and I believe uh, Marianne Frost. 
Right. They called it the AUG. That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. And, and there was also cholera going around too. So because of the um, human waste. So there was a lot of, a lot of things that were causing sickness. And Marianne Frost also had a child. And so, yeah, so the Snively sisters were, were nurses and would come to the aid. And, and Marianne Frost was one of those. So Marianne Frost doesn't know about, probably doesn't know about any of those three marriages. And Belinda Marden, Parley Pratt takes her on his mission to New York. So she becomes pregnant sometime after that wedding of November 1844. When they come back to Nauvoo, clearly Belinda Martin's pregnant, and nobody knows except for the inner circle of Brigham Young, Heber C. Kimball, and probably Willard Richards that know that, that she has been married to him. Even Orson Pratt did not know it, and he's still having a great deal of difficulty with polygamy, and he hears rumors about his brother running around the city with Belinda Marden. And Parley also meets one of his future wives and her sisters that are in New Jersey. And so he's probably doing things with them. And so all of this is, you know, this has been happening for Orson Pratt hearing about this stuff while he's on his mission in New York because he follows his brother. And so Orson Pratt returns to Nauvoo with all this information that he's gotten while he's on his mission in New York. And he comes back to New York, or if he comes back to Nauvoo, or Parley Pratt is attacking Sarah Pratt. And they actually end up having a big fight in the, the uh, temple during one of the endowment company's sessions. And these were an all-day thing. They would start, sometimes they would never even stop. They would just go 24 hours because the endowment back then could take up to eight hours in in, in the Nauvoo temple. And, and the purpose was to get all of these people endowed. They had about a month that they were trying to get all these people before they, they left for the West. And so on January 11th, 1846, Parley confronts Sarah again in the, the temple and he's uh, accusing her of influencing Marianne Frost against him and trying to break up his family because Sarah Pratt, Orson's wife, is clearly sympathetic to Marianne Frost not being satisfied with polygamy. Parley even, Parley Pratt says that uh, in front of everybody that, that Sarah is an apostate, that she speaks against the heads of the church, and that she's been doing insults against him. And so Orson loses, you know, his temper finally, and then gets in the middle of this and starts yelling at Parley Pratt defending Sarah Pratt for these accusations. Brigham Young, Willard Richards, Heber C. Kimball, and the other men actually grab Orson Pratt and throw him out of the, the temple. And so the next day, Orson Pratt writes like a five or a six page letter to Brigham Young explaining what he's doing. And so 
it's it's an it's a great letter, and I, I won't read the whole th- the whole letter is just absolutely fascinating. But but he he says to bring him in. He says with all the light knowledge that he Parley has received concerning the law of the priesthood, plural marriage, and with all the counsels that he has received from our quorum, if he feels at liberty to go into the city of New York or elsewhere and seduce girls or females and sleep and have connection with them contrary to the law of God and the sacred counsels of the brethren, it is something that does not concern me as an individual. And if my quorum and the church can fellowship him, I shall find no fault with him, but leave it between him, the church, and God. But when it comes to that, that my wife cannot come into this holy and consecrated temple to enjoy the meetings and society of the saints without being attacked by his false accusation and hellish lies, and that too in the presence of a large assembly, I feel as though it was too much to be borne. Where is there a person that was present last evening that heard my wife say the least thing against him or his family? And yet she was accused by him before the respectable company in the most imprudent and malicious manner of whispering against him all over the temple. Under these circumstances, brethren, I verily suppose that I had a perfect right to say a few words in defense of my much-injured family. I therefore accused him of false accusations of mine. It was my belief at that time that there was no place nor circumstance in heaven, on earth, or in hell too sacred to defend the cause of my innocent family when they were publicly attacked in so just an insulting manner. Wow. Yeah, and then he actually, at the end of the letter, he actually says, I will do whatever, you know, I'll confess my faults, I'll do whatever you ask of me, even if it means I've got to bow down and kiss the feet of that wretch. <laughs> so he, he was pretty mad. Now, after Young and the council received the letter, the next day they changed their mind and they decided to allow Orson Pratt back into their council meetings and and uh, the temple to do the the ordinances. So it, it was a pretty passionate letter, to say the least. Marianne Frost goes in and visits to see Parley one last time in the wives in winter quarters. And she, she explains that she's not going west with him, that she is leaving and going back to her family in Maine. Well, she's actually going to go back to Nauvoo, uh, but ultimately she ends up going to Maine. This is what Parley wrote of her, and this is found in the family record of the Parley Parker Pratt family. Unfortunately, uh, it's never been made public, so, you know, I'm just pulling this from from a uh, article on Pratt and his wives, written by one of the descendants. She forsook her husband, in other words, Parley, who had moved out from Nauvoo on his way to the mountains, choosing her to return like Lot's wife and remain in Nauvoo till spring. She accordingly returned and took two of the children with her, Moroni and Olivia Pratt. After this, she came to the council bus, where her husband had an interview with her and still kindly invited her to go with him. But she still refused and wished to return to the state of Maine. That's what Parley thought of Marianne at the end there. Marianne actually does go back to Nauvoo, does go on to Maine, and five years later, she then comes to Utah. 
and remains the the rest of her life an active participating Mormon. I believe she moved to Payson and lived out her final years. She lived with her uh, with her with one of her children and maybe one of her grandchildren. There is one other thing I want to add that that while Mary Ann to show the amount of pressure I think that that these women were under, it's important that I read this because this is a meeting in which Brigham Young calls for um, Parley Pratt and Marianne because of the conflict going on and he's wanting to put an end to it. So he says, according to Parley, Marianne confessed she had been spreading falsehoods about him and promised to quit, for which she was frankly forgiven by her husband and then by mutual consent of both parties and by Brigham Young's advice, she was sealed to Joseph Smith the deceased president church for eternity and to her former husband for time as proxy. There's actually some evidence because Joseph Smith married her younger sister, Olivia Frost. And remember I said that he had prophesied that they would never, that the two sisters would never be separated. So there's some belief in the Pratt family, the ch- actually the children and John Taylor along with uh, the family that Joseph Smith wanted to marry Marianne Frost as one of his plural wives, but he was murdered before he could do that. Now, what's interesting is two days, you think about, okay, so this is supposed to be a reconciliation meeting with Brigham Young. Two days later, Parley Pratt then marries Phoebe Soper, the young woman that he was spending time with in New York besides his his plural wife Belinda Martson. So so two days later, so you know, you think about it and you think, okay, uh, how committed to a reconciliation was Parley Pratt to that. So anyway. Interesting. Um yeah, yeah. Okay, Pratt then goes on another mission to England. He's always going on missions, by the way. I mean it's pretty much constant for him to do that. So he gets back to winter quarters and that's that's when Marianne comes and visits him. And this is how he finds his family. He says that his family was struggling to, to survive in a log cabin. His wives and children had been plagued by sickness, especially scurvy, hunger and cold, and for several days subsisted only on cornmeal. In addition, the Pratt's horses and most of their cows and oxen were dead. Pratt and, you know, you and I have talked about this before about these missionaries who talk about, you know, on their missions, they have these great meals at Christmas time or Thanksgiving, and then they write their, their wives back home and are actually starving to death. And Pratt had that same kind of experience, and he was not unique in having that kind of experience. Uh, Pratt and his eight wives and five children, they leave winter quarters. They're, they head out in early 18, early summer 1847. They arrive, uh, September 1847. They probably go with most of the rest of the pioneers and actually go into what you know as Pioneer Park. And he built an adobe cabin there for, for his family. It's interesting. During most of that first year, Belinda was pregnant with twins and caring for one-year-old Nephi. Hanetta was pregnant and caring for two-year-old Alma. Sarah was caring for six-month-old Julia. Mary was pregnant and caring for one-year-old Helaman. 
and and he was a prized child because he had actually been run over by a wagon and survived it. Martha was childless. She had lost a child and homesick for England. Agatha was expecting her first child, and Phoebe and Elizabeth assisted the others in tending the children. The eight Pratt wives delivered five more children during that first year, bringing the total to ten in a little over two years. So he was a baby-making machine. Well, he's doing his priesthood duty. (laughs) I guess that's what we should call it, yes. It seems that Pratt was, Parley Pratt, was... um, good at keeping secrets because about his plural marriages. <laughs> As we learned, even from his own wives, he kept the secret. But he was also good at keeping it secret from everybody else. One of the wives, um, Anne Agatha Walker, I believe, she was a, let's see, she was a milliner. And she actually made quite good money, I guess, at it, and, and kept the family with food on the though Belin Martin um complained about her saying that she didn't share enough of her money. Um and so Agatha had to write a letter to Parley explaining that hey, you know, they the family didn't have eggs and milk and a bunch of stuff that I then went out and bought. So there was a there was obviously conflict going on among the wives. And Agatha's Walker's parents knew that she had gotten married. They actually wrote a letter and said that, you know, they, that if she does get married, make sure and write us because we really want to, you know, help you. She writes to her family, you know, saying that she's not married, that uh, she's happy living in the Pratt home. They're taking wonderful care of me. You know, I, I'm just doing really well. Now, remember, Marianne Frost, his first wife, who she's actually talking about, is not anywhere around. She's in Maine. And so the parents get enough money together and they travel to the United States. And Agatha Walker's mother passes away in St. Louis. Her father makes it to Utah. And it wasn't till he made it to Utah that he finally discovers that his daughter's been married to Parley and actually has children. So, so she doesn't know. So he doesn't know that she's been married and has no idea that she's had children. Wow. So that's how, that's how secret they were able to keep it. Yeah. And I, again, I just want to highlight this because we've been talking about sort of the dangers of secrecy when coupled with these marriage practices, they don't always end well. The, right. Right. Though, and you know, you're, you're absolutely brilliant because you actually bring up something that's quite interesting with Pratt. You know, we've talked, you know, or I've talked about the negative. I've I've brought up how um, unhappy Marianne was with Parley and and what's going on there. But actually his wives, the other wives who stayed with him, were actually quite, they had glowing things to say about him. You know, they would say that, they they would write letters to their their family saying you know that they couldn't have been married to a greater man that he had done so much for them and given them so much love and and you know this was acknowledging that they had six other sister wives in the home and you know oodles of children running around and and one of the i remember one of the wives would talk about 
she wrote to one of the family members how Parley Pratt would try and load up on his lap as many children as he could. And, you know, they would sing children's songs together. Belinda Martin Pratt wrote the first major tract, and it's still thought of as the best defense of plural marriage written by a woman. It received worldwide attention. It was published. It, it, it traveled, you know, Parley Pratt was in England, I believe, when he wrote her and he said, you know, to her that, that your pamphlet is being circulated among everyone in England, you know. So it's a difficult story to reconcile when you've got someone who goes through what Mary Frost went through. And there is one other wife who left and, and went with the gold expedition um, of Gentiles that had come through Utah, and she left Parley Pratt. That was uh, the woman who Mary, I think it was, let's see, it's uh, uh, Martha Monks, who was the one who, who was depressed during that one statement. And she, she left, you know, she couldn't take it anymore. But, but the other wives, when they talked about their husband after his, his murder, um, they had nothing but good things to say about him. And, and you could, and I should say, qualify that by saying, and they, some of the statements are from even when he's alive and they're saying, and women, who came through Utah with their husbands who were well-educated from the East would write about going in to the Pratt household and how disgusted they were by what they saw with these multiple wives. But at the same time, how they recognized that these women were actually happy in the situation they were in. So, it, it it really it's a difficult and Pratt was uh, definitely charismatic. There's no doubt, and so maybe you know we could we could chalk it up to that. I mean, there's one account by a guy named Lorenzo Dow Stevens. Now this again is not published until 1916. I'm not sure when he wrote it, and he gets some of he gets some things actually wrong in his account of Pratt, but he says that he has one of his spiritual wives with him. And well, she had spirit enough for two as far as spirit goes. When we were all called in for dinner into the dining room, there was Pratt with his wife on his lap and she combing his whiskers with his fingers. I thought it took some spirit to do that right before us all, but it may have been an evil spirit. I will speak of Mr. Pratt later. (laughs) So these Victorian people, you know, they they were just uh, uh, so offended by this kind of stuff. But clearly, many of these women were were quite happy with being with him. Yeah, it's it's tough. It's really tough to to read, to study, and to try and reconcile. I mean, that's still thing. You know, things that we're dealing with now, though, we're trying to understand women that openly choose this. In the modern age, I mean, it's a really complicated, complex system of choices and oppressions and freedom and all of those kind of things. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I suppose we should at least deal with the McLean 
or McLean. I, you know, different people pronounce it differently. I've been waiting but, for this. <laughs> well, Hector McLean has been accused by Mormons of being an abusive alcoholic. Uh, the problem is that much of even his wife's family, Eleanor, Jane McComb, don't seem to support that because they were more than happy to take the children away from Eleanor McComb and keep them for Hector McLean. But this is, again, on one of Pratt's missions. He's actually the mission leader for the entire Pacific, but the headquarters are in, in San Francisco. And so he's created a newspaper there in defending the polygamy. He goes on a mission to Chile while he's there. And uh, one of his wives has a baby while they're on their mission, though she loses the baby. He also, I believe, takes one of his last wives, uh, Kazia Downs, on this mission so that he, he, when he writes to ask about her being his missionary companion to Brigham Young, he tells Brigham Young, you know, that he's going to take her on a mission and, and if he would approve that. And so Brigham Young approves that. And then he writes her a letter. This, again, is Kazia Downs. And he says, uh, Miss Hill, he says, I'm sorry, I can't remember your name, um, but would you be willing to marry me? And so they get married, you know, shortly after the letter gets That's sent to her. really smooth. I like that. <laughs> yeah. Fun yeah. fact, actually, on my, my husband claims this later, but he didn't know my first name for our first three dates. And I found out later, so... So he called you uh, Sister Hanson. I don't even know. You know, when I found that out, I wasn't I wasn't very happy. But I guess <laughs> okay. I guess uh, there must be something about it. I don't know. Yeah. Well, Parley called the uh, Kaziah Downs uh, Sister Hill. So because that was her married name, she had been married and had left her husband because um, he refused to be an active participating member of the church. So, okay. So Pratt's on his mission. He's now headquartered in San Francisco. Uh, there's a small branch in San Francisco. Um, and the, it, you know, we should point out that the Mormons, um, and I've always said one of the reasons why San Francisco looks like a major Eastern city is because it was founded by New York Mormons. And so the Mormons actually settled it with Sam Brannan. Mormonism had a, a long history and, and by this 1850, Three or fifty, yeah, fifty-two, fifty-three uh, mission. It was now a bustling city. Th there were still uh, Mormons that were from the Brooklyn that were still living in San Francisco, though many of them were not participating anymore. But there were all kinds of family connections, so it was a a, a good place to have the mission headquarters for the entire Pacific. Eleanor McLean complains to Parley that uh, her husband doesn't allow her to attend church. So he convinces her to leave him. And I believe he finds out. So Parley gets to know, or Parley Pratt gets to know Eleanor McLean and her husband, Hector McLean, in San Francisco. You know, there's no doubt that their marriage was a horrible marriage, meaning the McLean marriage. I'm always hesitant when I've got these accounts that are calling him an alcoholic. Again, when we've got the other side making it appear that 
He was actually a pretty decent guy all in all, but, but he clearly had a violent temper. I'm wondering if she had a violent temper because there's discussion about walking in, you know, that uh, Pratt said that, uh, and others when they would walk into the home, um, that there would be a lot of fighting going on, whether that was purely over religion and because Parley Pratt baptized the McLean children without the father's approval, without even the father's knowledge. So, yes, it was a bad marriage. Did Parley make it any better of a marriage? It clearly, he didn't. You know, the, there was a lot of encouragement of these women to leave their non-Mormon husbands and uh, either go to Utah or uh, go on missions, uh, different things like that. So Eleanor is in San Francisco with Hector McLean and her three children. She leaves, or Hector uh, puts the three children on a steamer to New Orleans to go live with uh, Eleanor McLean's parents. And Eleanor convinces Hector and her brother that she needs to be with the children. So they put her on the next passage, next steamer, to go to New Orleans. And she goes there and she pleads with her parents to have the children. They're unsympathetic. Um, they're Presbyterian and they uh, think that her newfound religion is not only socially inappropriate, it's just it's a, a wrong direction for her. Now, r- remind me if I'm missing... If I'm getting this wrong, but I think I remembered reading letters from her father back to her, sort of condemning her for becoming a Mormon. That's correct. And that actually happens on the second time she comes to New Orleans. So what she does after she's rejected by them in New Orleans, by her parents, meaning her parents, you know, it's an interesting thing because the oldest boy is actually sent to a boarding school in um, Ohio and, you know, there, there's an entry, um, in Louisa Pratt's, uh, Addison Pratt's wife, where in San Francisco, this boy actually was severely injured by a gunpowder explosion. It had burnt his face. So, you know, the, it sounds like her parents were actually trying to really take good care of the children. And so she leaves disappointed that she can't reclaim her children. And so she comes back to Utah, and it's there in Utah that Brigham Young marries her and Parley Pratt. So, she, And she's done this without divorcing Hector McLean. About a year, not quite a year, about eight, nine months after this marriage, Parley Pratt then receives a mission call to the East. So he and Eleanor discuss her getting her children back, and so they head to St. Louis, and at St. Louis, they park company. She heads on to New Orleans while Parley Pratt stays in St. Louis for a while, and then he moves on through, goes to New York, does his missionary service, and um, not quite a year later, they meet back up, or their, their plan is they're going to meet back up in St. Louis after she gets the children. And there's a bit of correspondence going on between her and Eleanor Pratt and, or Eleanor McLean and Parley Pratt about stuff. 
they're they're both concerned though because and even the the people like um Erastus Snow and George A. Smith who are also in St. Louis, any letters that are going to Utah, uh and any letters that are going between Eleanor McLean and Parley Pratt, they're all they try and write as much in code as they can because they're concerned that um Hector McLean, who happens to be a Mason, will have these letters intercepted. And they're actually correct because Eleanor's letter telling, or I'm sorry, it's Parley's letter to Eleanor saying that, uh, you know, he's left, he wants to meet up with her, the whole thing, um, actually does get intercepted. And that's one of the ways that Hector McLean figures out where Parley Pratt is. But in the meantime, Eleanor goes to, like I said, Eleanor goes to New Orleans and, uh, she actually kidnaps her children. Um, and it, that is, and that's the way that the New Orleans law saw it, that she kidnapped. So she told her parents that she was going to take the children, that she had renounced Mormonism and that she was going to take the children into town to do some shopping. And so they let her do that. And then she just left and she met up with, um, Mormons that were going to be heading to Utah in Texas. So she, she connects with them to hide out with them. Hector's told he's contacted by her parents that Eleanor has kidnapped the children. And so Hector McLean starts contacting uh, U.S. Marshals and um, local sheriffs and uh, both about Parley Pratt, that he's committed adultery with his wife and that his wife, Eleanor McLean, has kidnapped their children from, from her parents. And, and it goes so far that even the, um, U.S. soldiers are, are actually contacted by McLean and by some of his, uh, friends and by, uh, U.S. Marshals. And so they actually get involved and they then start looking also. So Eleanor McLean is captured with the children. Well, the children are first taken from her by Hector McLean and, uh, and some of his people. And Eleanor is then arrested in Texas. And so she's being brought, um, to Arkansas. And they then, uh, because of one of the, this letter that is from Parley Pratt to Eleanor McLean, they figure out where Parley is along with he's, he's back in St. Louis and they've, there are some Mormons there who let the, uh, U.S. Marshals and the, the sheriff know that Pratt's in town. So Pratt escapes, barely escapes from St. Louis before being arrested. And he makes it, uh, into Indian territory, which is Oklahoma and stays on an Indian reservation. And then he works his way to, because he knows that Eleanor McLean's coming through Texas to go to Utah. So he's working his way from Oklahoma, um, from the Indian territory to meet up with her. And, um, like I say, that, that Hector f- discovered the children and, and Eleanor. So he takes the kids, takes them 
and puts them with uh, friends of his and then goes, uh, and Eleanor's arrested. And then he goes looking for Parley Pratt. So he finds out that Parley Pratt is on this move and he gets captured and, and U.S. soldiers and U.S. marshals are, are now taking Parley Pratt and Eleanor McLean to, uh, Van Buren, Arkansas. And that's where there would, there would be a trial, uh, to be held Do from we the have arrest. Any sort of indication what Parley was thinking when this was happening? <clears throat> You know, he, um, I think he was, he knew that, Hector, you know, they, they knew that Hector McLean, both he and Eleanor knew that Hector McLean was out for him. Um, as far as I can tell, Hector McLean had made it pretty public that he was, he was, uh, you know, going after him along with, uh, the, the, uh, law enforcement. And so it's, it appears from everything that I've read that, he was just trying to ex- escape. You know, he, all, he, he was like a man on the run. And he, remember he had done this, um, the, the famous story about him in, in Missouri, in, in, uh, uh, Columbus, Missouri. Or, yeah. Um, and he, uh, it was the 4th of July festivities and he escaped then. And there's that famous story about where, the the sheriff sent Six's dog on him, and so uh, Parley as Parley's running through the field trying to get away from the dog. The dog's right on his heels, and then he says he had this brilliant stroke of of uh, inspiration, and he told the he called the dog by name and said Sickum, and just pointed ahead, and the dog ran <laughs> on past him looking for a a non existent person. And, and Parley escaped and then made it to Nauvoo. So Parley had done this before. This was not an uncommon, and he'd also been, uh, pretty much running from creditors, um, hit most of his life. So he was used to this kind of, of, uh, cloak and dagger kind of thing. So he and Eleanor McLean are, are on their way and they're, they're surrounded by U.S. soldiers. U.S. Marshals, the whole thing, and they're brought into Van Buren. Um, and Eleanor goes before the judge. And again, this is most of this story is seen through Eleanor's eyes. As a matter of fact, from here on out, it's pretty much all through Eleanor's eyes now. And, and so Eleanor says she convinced the judge that her, um, story was the true story that that she was the persecuted one that Hector McLean had been abusive to her that he was an alcoholic and that she only was out to protect her children so the judge essentially dismissed the charges against her and Hector McLean the only judge the only crime he could bring against Eleanor McLean was for stealing of the clothing of children of the children's clothing because they were no longer in um, Louisiana. They were no longer in New Orleans where that crime of, of stealing or of kidnapping the children. So it was a pretty frivolous crime. And, and so it makes sense that the judge would dismiss that to me. Anyway, it made sense, but 
with Parley Pratt, it was a complete, this was adultery. And so he actually asked, the judge actually asked Eleanor if she would testify against Parley Pratt. She gives him sort of a wishy-washy answer, sort of agrees to it. Uh, he says, we'll put you up in the, the finest hotel. We will treat you, you know, with the greatest of kindness. She actually talks about how women in the, the town brought her new dresses. She was fed, you know, the, the best food, everything. They're given the finest uh, room in the, the hotel. So the, the day that, that Parley Pratt then goes before the judge, um, again, according to Eleanor, the judge is sympathetic to him and basically says, uh, we're not going to carry on a trial because um, we need witnesses for the defense. And so I'm going to put you in jail. And, and really why the judge, again, according to Eleanor, why the judge did this was to protect Parley because the mob was gathering sympathetic to Hector McLean and uh, Parley Pratt stealing his wife. In fact, when Parley Pratt was asked why he did what he did with Eleanor McLean, he said, I would do the same for any person in this, in that situation. And the, the idea was that Parley Pratt was saying to all these people in Van Buren, you know, I'll, I would take your wives for my own wife, just as I would do for Eleanor. So it, it, in some ways, Parley Pratt created sort of this uh, crazy um, mentality. And so they put, the judge puts Parley Pratt in jail. The next morning he comes very early, brings him his horse, brings him a gun and brings him a knife and says, I want you to get out of here. So again, Parley escapes from jail. Um, this time though, through the, the help of the judge and Parley Pratt then gets on the horse. Oh, he, he turns down the gun and he turns down the, the knife, but he gets on the horse. He takes off. Some of Hector McLean's Masonic friends have been watching the jail all night. So they see all this happening. They contact Hector McLean and tell him this has happened. So they then get on at least three of them get on the, on their horses and they take after Parley Pratt. Parley seems to be able to outmaneuver them and get away. But then someone tells Hector McLean and his uh, friends where they saw Parley riding. And so they then catch up with him. And Hector McLean pulls his, his gun and starts shooting and... The, again, Eleanor McLean's account says that bullets were whizzing by him. One or two hit his saddle. Others went through his coat, but no bullets actually hit him while he was, he was on the horse. Parley Pratt rides into a grove of trees. Hector McLean catches up with him, pulls him off of his horse, pulls Parley Pratt off the horse and takes a knife and stabs him at least three times in the chest. Parley Pratt is able to to crawl away into some brush and Hector McLean goes to his other friends to get one of their guns. And so he comes back with a, a, uh, a pistol 
and he shoots Parley Pratt in the neck with the bullet actually ricocheting from his, his shoulder. Wow. Yeah, yeah. It, and how old was Parley when this happened? So this happened in 57. So, and I think Parley was born right around the turn of the century. So he would have been, you know, in his mid-50s at this point. And the date is important, right? And you're going to talk about why 1857 is an important date when this happens. Sure, that is correct. Now, the the thing that um, Parley, Parley Pratt um, was a, probably a fairly physical man. There's a lot of discussion. Uh, he was born in uh, 18, I'm sorry, he was born in 1807. He died in 1857, May 13th, 1857, almost 50 years uh, because he was born April 12th. So, so uh, just uh, 50 years and one month old. Um, so he was, he was a young man. He was a young man and he was a fairly uh, physical man. You know, I mean, he, you know, in 1838, uh, when he outran, you know, the, the sheriff there in uh, Columbia, Missouri, he uh, had to have been fairly physical to do that. And he, you know, he, he was uh, going through trees and you know things so and and even in this and riding a horse and and he was actually i think he he made it 20 miles before mclean actually caught up with him so you know he clearly was a skilled horseman too you know at, at this so he um so yeah so on april 20th uh, or may 13th 1857 he's murdered and he at this point People started gathering. There, there was a blacksmith house near uh, where this happened, and you know they they started coming out. And the blacksmith uh, got got people, and and so McLean took off with his buddies and headed back to Van Buren. And um, Eleanor says that Hector actually came to the bar there and drank and and was partying and then when uh and then took off shortly after it's it's sort of a convoluted way that she describes it um clearly she had no love for hector mclean so it's difficult to know where she's uh accurate and where she's not so but parley pratt lived for most of the that day and and they kept asking him if he wanted a doctor and he kept telling them no. He kept asking for water and that was his main thing that he just kept asking them for water. They would bring him water. And so he finally, um, uh, dies and they, they bring his body. The blacksmith has his body brought to his house and they dress him. Uh, they clean him. They shave him and they dress him and they prepare him for a funeral. Eleanor is, uh, brought from Van Buren to the, the, um, blacksmith's, um, house and she, um, brings some nice material so that his body is wrapped in. They hold a funeral service there and bury him. He does have gold and, uh, in coin. And because he had been given a hundred dollars by the people in St. Louis to help him make his escape to Utah. And he had about 70 of that, 70 of that, uh, gold coin left. And so he was, um, 
they used that for the burial, and then the the remainder of it went into the public coffers for the the township there. Um, he was buried in the blacksmith's family cemetery. There's uh, that whole is quite an interesting thing. They actually went and dug. They were supposed to dig up Parley Pratt's body. Um, I can't remember if it was like 20 or 30 or 40 years, but it was during the, the 20th century. And they, they brought this, uh, thing that, you know, to read the soil. And so they, they found some bones where they thought that it would have been Parley Pratt. They dug those bones up and they actually brought them back to Salt Lake. Um, the question is, for everybody is, was that really Parley Pratt's remains though? And, and there's just no way unless I guess they dig them back up and, and do a DNA test. Um, Why is there controversy surrounding that? Just because it would be so hard to do. Do you mean to dig them back up and do the DNA testing? Well, no, what, I mean, the I mean, guy, pardon? It, was it, was there a scandal involving thinking that it wouldn't be Parley's bones? Yeah, well, there is, there's people who think that it's not. And, and, and the reality is, let's say they did dig him up or dig up that those remains and they come to find out it's really not Parley Pratt, um, then what do you do? Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, that, that, that's like opening up a real can of worms there. So I think everybody is just saying, okay, it's okay. We just figure this is Parley Pratt's remains. We'll, we'll live with that. So, um, so Parley Pratt, um, has been murdered and it's, it's a horrific murder. Um, the, there's all kinds of feelings about it from people, from Eleanor McLean, uh, writing a, a, a letter to the, um, local newspaper saying, you know, this is, this is innocent blood. It would have been better, um, for the state of Arkansas to have had seven years of famine than to have had this man's blood spilt on your ground. Um, and to other people saying that McLean did the right thing because um, this is, you know, a man who stole his wife from him. Um, and, you know, I personally, Lindsay, I find it atrocious. I, I, this is a horrific crime. Um, you know, he was stabbed. He was stabbed. He was shot. He was, he lingered for hours. And no matter how you look at it, in my opinion, um, this is outright murder. And so what, what would Hector- you say, what would you say to critics that say he got what was coming to him? He stole, he stole another man's wife. Yeah. See, uh, that to me is troubling, um, on many levels. First of all, uh, the biggest one problem I have with that is that uh, why does Eleanor McLean not have a voice in that? You know what? Uh, clearly, Eleanor McLean, as we were talking about, had there was no love lost between the two. I mean, I don't think he liked her anymore. And and there, matter of fact, he actually there's evidence that he wanted her put in away in a sane asylum. Um, he thought she was crazy, um, and she clearly hated him um, and everything that she wrote. Um, she she 
hated him and, and loved Parley Pratt. So just that in and of itself of, of completely dismissing anything that she felt about it. Um, you know, what you're doing when a person would say, well, you know, Parley Pratt deserved what he got for stealing another man's wife. Well, you know, um, that's, that's just completely dismissing her. Well, the other is that. hopefully, it's, I mean, do people really deserve to be murdered? Yeah, that and that's right. You know, that, that is just, um, the thought over something like, um, marital problems. You know, we, we know that happens all the time and people go to jail for that. It's just ethically wrong. It's morally and ethically, ethically wrong to murder someone else. Um, and this, this was, this was cold blooded murder, um, for what Hector McLean did. And now, not just that, uh, it, this is going to have reverberations, <clears throat> right? That don't just affect this small family. Sure. So that's right. You're bringing us now to the next development. So, so Eleanor, um, gets her stuff together and, and leaves Van Buren. Uh, Arkansas and heads to Utah. On her way, she meets no other than um, Orrin Porter Rockwell and a, a group that he's heading back with mail from the east. I feel like this is where I have to say, dun, dun, dun. <laughs> yeah, that's we correct. Lost time. <laughs> and so Porter Rockwell's um, carrying quite a bit of information, uh, not only is he carrying Eleanor McLean and the murder of Parley Pratt? But he's also going to be informing Brigham Young that the mail contract that Brigham Young owns, that he's been making a great deal of money off of from the United States government, has now been suspended. He's going to be bringing information that there's a, a U.S. the U.S. Army is now leaving um, Kearney, Kansas, Fort Kearney, Kansas and heading to uh, Utah. And um, so all of these developments, all of these things are happening with Orrin Porter Rockwell. And they make it in record time. Will Bagley likes to call it the fastest any wagon had ever made it across the plains. And they made it in record time to uh, to the Great Salt Lake. They made it the day before Pioneer Day. And so they consulted with Brigham Young about what was going on. Brigham Young goes on up to the canyon for where the Pioneer Day festivities are being held. There's uh, all the events. Everything's active. You know, nobody knows what's going to happen in Wait, minutes. Let's, let's pause and ask our listeners how good they remember, how good they've been listening to this series, Pioneer Day of 1857. Hopefully, if you've uh, been taking this information in, you're going to know what's coming. Yes, yeah. So, so Orrin Porter Rockwell rides in with Eleanor McLean, and they announce all of these developments that we just talked about. The, and, and particularly the murder of Parley Pratt. And they've got Parley Pratt's widow standing there crying and describing these events that, uh, that she had been told about how he was murdered. So this, this all happens along with the discussion 
that this U.S. Army is on its way to Utah to, and, and, and according to Brigham Young, they're on their way there to exterminate the Mormons. So all of these developments are happening, and there's uh, a wagon train from Arkansas, so the same state that Parley Pratt has been murdered in. There's a wagon train called the Francher Train, and there are farmers who are on their way to California. They're fairly well off, and as they make their way through Utah, all of these developments are happening. All of this paranoia is happening, and at Mountain Meadows, those 120-plus people are all murdered except for those seven children who are then uh, put in Mormon homes and then given uh, to the U.S. government after a time period and then taken back to Arkansas. It seems to be a correlation between the murder of Parley Pratt and then what occurred in, in uh, Mountain Meadows in, on September 11th, 1857. Um, not Obviously, there was a lot going on, but... But you have to realize that at least that that Parley Pratt's murder played a part in that in that tragedy in that massacre. Yeah, absolutely. Things were building, and and it just it's one more part of violence that sort of makes Mormons feel persecuted, right? They're hearing another apostle is killed, and that's very very triggering for Mormons who had left. Nauvoo and suffered a lot for this. This is exactly the sort of thing that Brigham needs to sort of unite the people again. Well, and you and I talked about that. The, the, the events of the Mormon Re- Reformation um, also play a major role. And, you know, because that happened before Pratt's murder. Matter of fact, Parley Pratt actually was one of the speakers that went around. His rhetoric doesn't seem to have been as violent as. Um, uh, Jedediah Grants and Heber, Heber Kimball's and, uh, uh, Brigham Young's. But, but still, he was one of the speakers. And so, yeah, and we talked about that, how the violence that was occurring among the Mormon people themselves, um, during that Reformation was, was horrific. And so what um, we see in the 1860s after this, of course, is the United Order being established. And the cotton mission and all of these things where, um, I, in my opinion, and I could be wrong about this, but I think Brigham uses these events to sort of, uh, motivate the saints into this sort of feverish last days. The end is nigh. Um, this is why you have to give everything now and put it all on the line. Yeah. Well, and speaking of Brigham Young, um, it's quite interesting. And, you know, we've just talked about how horrible the, the murder was of Parley Pratt. And in council meetings, um, Brigham Young would say things and, and then others would fall right in. George A. Smith, uh, Rastus Snow, they would just fall right in and basically say, yeah, Parley Pratt got what he deserved. Um, in one of the council meetings, which actually it, I was reading the minutes of this council meeting, and it's it's really a, uh, a, a all the apostles and, and first presidents here together, and basically it's a a big meeting on how bad women are, 
is what they, their main, that's the subject of the meeting. <laughs> um, and then, but, but then, uh, Brigham Young adds, he says, brother Parley's br- blood was spilt. I was glad of it for it paid the debt he owed for he hoard. He felt the law was made for the rest of the elders of Israel, but not for him. Uh, you know, when I read that the first time, which was a number of years ago, it just, uh, my heart sank. I, I thought, how could someone be that cruel? And this, this is only, this is 1865. So what, that's um, eight years after the murder of Parley Pratt. And it's right about the same time. It's a May, May 1st, 1865 minutes meeting. Um, and so Just, in eight years, the rhetoric changes from persecution to to whatever this is. I don't have yeah, to word for it. to to that that he deserved what he got. Yeah, yeah. I mean, actually, he did. Act, there was another time where um, he uh, Brigham Young also, and it wasn't actually that far after the murder the, that he. This is when they talked about George A. Smith and. Uh, Erastus Snow told Parley he shouldn't go to Arkansas, he would die. Now, it's always nice that these guys can say this after the events, you know. It's like, uh, yeah, we told Parley Pratt he shouldn't go to Arkansas because he's going to die in Arkansas. You know, it, it, I find it interesting that you can come up with that after the murder, you know. But, but yeah, it, it just, that was really disturbing when I read that, that, that uh, Young didn't seem to have a problem with that. Um, the and maybe to you know to talk about a little bit of the positive is Pratt's wives. Um, you know we talked about Marianne Frost quite a bit and and her disillusionment with with plural marriage with polygamy and how she uh, couldn't tolerate it and then Martha Monks who after losing a child left Parley Pratt. But those are really the only two wives that um, Parley Pratt um, that didn't stay with him till the end of his life. Uh, the, the other wives actually had really positive things to say about him, both while they were married to him and after, you know, after obviously the, the accolades were, were quite um, powerful. Um, he, Agatha um, uh, Pratt said that that I her in her um, reminiscence is actually digitized and available on the Church History Library website, so we could put a link to that because it's a, it's really a powerful statement by one of his wives. But but she says he had an innate reverence and respect for women as the mother of the souls of men. He loved his wives not only as the beloved of his bosom, but as the mother mothers of his children, whom he loved dearly. I heard a lady ask him, Brother Pratt, when did you first fall in love? He replied, When I was a babe in my mother's arms and looked up into her tender, loving eyes, I fell in love and have been in love ever since. Wow. Um, yeah, pretty powerful, huh? Um the uh, one, and I like this because it was actually written um, while Parley Pratt was still alive. But Phoebe, 
writes to her sister. She says, I am blessed with a husband of a noble and generous turn of a kind and affectionate heart, one that delights in good acts and kindness and discharging every known duty. Esther, you told me that you thought that when I got married, if I ever did, it would be to some old doting childish person or some tyrant. But I must tell you that that must it for once I have one of the best men that ever graced this earth, and ever will in my humble opinion. I know that my husband is capable and will exalt me, and what more do I want? And we had mentioned that Belinda, you know, wrote the, uh, she wrote a pamphlet defending plural marriage that, that really set the stage for all defenses by women after that. So, so it's, it's quite telling, I think, about how these women carried on his legacy. Yeah, I like that. That's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad. I'm glad you do. And, and I really appreciate you bringing their voices into it because, I mean, they're the ones that are really affected. I mean, we like to talk about what Brigham Young is saying, you know, in a meeting and talking about that's really interesting. But this kind of gets lost in the shuffle, right? What what the lives look like for these women, what the lives look like for his children, what happened after this. It really is. You know, and we talked about, I mean, the, the number of, of descendants is, is really mind-boggling to think about how many um, how many descendants Parley Pratt has. And, and yeah, these, uh, and these women's lives after he was murdered were not easy. I believe at least two of them married one and both I think were polygamous and the one was just a disaster for her. You know, it was the first, she was the first polygamous wife and the first wife, which is normal, you know, it just had a really difficult time with it. And so there, there was constant conflict. And so that ended up in divorce. Parley Pratt left his wife's, financially destitute you know he did have the sales of his books and his his son edited along with i think it was john taylor the autobiography of parley pratt and you know parley pratt had written that because he was hoping that that would pull him out of poverty and so that you know so john taylor and parley pratt jr um, finished it and then, and then sold it. But that wasn't until the 1870s. And, you know, so you, you had, you know, at least a good, you know, 12 to 15 years where, um, there wasn't any of that income from, from that sale of the book. So it, it was a very difficult life for those women after. I think Agatha probably would have been the only one that would have been fairly she would have been okay because she she was a milliner by trade and and so her business was actually what kept the family having eggs and bread and and milk and and things like that so but uh, but the others it would have been so horrible do you know what became of the children well there were i think what did i say 28 of them or something like that um so no, I mean, you know Carly Pratt Jr married and ended up getting a divorce, and his wife then married Charles Penrose, though he um, remained a, a member and I think actually had some fairly high callings in the church 
Um, I don't know, to be honest, I'm not sure if any of his descendants, like, you know, the canons, I mean, I, still to this day, I think most of the general authorities are descendants of, of uh, George Q. Cannon. I'm not sure about Parley Pratt, to be honest with you, um, and, and how many of those uh, went in to high leadership positions of the church. I don't know. Okay. And I didn't read anything on that. That's another area of exploration that our listeners can <laughs> That's <into>. right. <laughs> well, Joe, I really appreciate you coming on to tell us this story. It's fascinating. And, and I think you and I might disagree on this, but I, I think it's one of the best stories in um, Mormon history because it, it just has all the elements that are so fascinating. It's got romance and, and violence, and, and yet the context, the value of what this means really has an impact on so many people. And so it's, I mean, I know you don't like it to be glorified, but in, in my mind, it really is like at the heart of what the West was, what the frontier was. The story has all those elements for me. Well, actually, I would agree with you. And, and as I told you, I like Parley Pratt. People in, in uh, history that, you know, we, we just grow to not care for very much. But there's something about Parley Pratt from, from being this man who wrote all these amazing books and pamphlets to how the legacy he left with, uh, that and the explorations and, and just everything. You're right. He, a fascinating individual. He's a fascinating person and his wives, as we've talked about, and hopefully that's come through that his wives were equally fascinating people. I think, I think that did come through wonderfully. And, and, you know, what I learned from Agatha's story is it's very complicated, right? Because when I first heard the story, it was very reductive of her. You know, she's this, this sort of soiled dove caught in the middle and, uh, you know, wanting to run away to polygamy for, as if a character in a dime novel, you know? And we see that it's really complicated and she is she is a complex person and her actions have consequences for not just for her and Parley, but for her children and probably for generations to come. That's correct. That is, that's so true, Lindsay. Well, thanks again, Joe, for coming on. And, uh, we get to have you one more time before the series is done. You're going to come talk about the women that were rejected or right. that rejected polygamy. Rejected, right? Yeah. Not yeah, were rejected. Right. <laughs> Not a lot of women were rejected. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, there doesn't seem to be that. It seems to be that, yes, right. That'll be fun. That'll be fun. And that should be fun, too. That, that is one everybody has been asking for, and that one has taken some work to find. I'm actually surprised at how much work that one has taken, at least for me, to find. Yes, yeah. Well, you and I, yeah, we probably should have a little talk about that at some point. Okay. Well, thanks again, Joe. Thank you, Lindsay. 